Well, welcome everyone to the Reimagining Cyber podcast. And Stan, do you know what today is? It's our 50th anniversary. It's our 50th anniversary, our 50th episode. Imagine that. Who would have thought just about over two years ago, right, when we launched this? And what we thought we would do is there's been so many great conversations we've had with the guests that we brought on. It's difficult to pick one or two or three there. We decided we're going to kind of sample things and do it in a bit of a way where it's about how things started out, the origin of the actual podcast timing around COVID-19, how we actually had many conversations around different threats, nation state, cybercrime, and how we actually interconnect cybersecurity into the real world we live in today around business and tying it back into the business outcomes and that maturation of the Cicerola as an example. So I'm really looking forward to some of the different snippets we're going to play through and give some additional kind of background. And the first one is from Josh Corman. It was actually episode number 31, COVID-19, the cavalry and cyber. No one is coming to save you. And Josh, if you recall, the time was actually uh, just coming off of uh, a stint working within CISA. Right. He had just left. Yep. And he was focused on for CISA uh, supporting COVID-19 and public health initiatives from a cybersecurity lens, of course. When I launched I Am the Cavalry, one of the problem statements was that our dependence on connected technology was growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety, human life, and national security. And when you frame it like that, you have two choices. Uh, you can either depend less upon those undependable things, or you can make them more dependable. The truth is, I want to advance both. And in a lot of these efforts, including the Congressional Task Force I did on healthcare that finished in 2017, you know, we, we essentially said things like, we've always been prone, we've always been prey, we just lacked sufficient predator activity. Well, that's over. It was already arguably ending before the pandemic, but boy, did things change during the pandemic. It was one thing to be prone and prey, but now that they're taking interest, taking action and taking advantage, it's going to take a very long time for us to right-size our dependence and make things more trustworthy. And these aren't just you know small, medium businesses. These are critical infrastructure providers. I think a lot of the federal government and the public-private partnership made unhealthy assumptions that we had more time to get our act together. Like I think we're on the right arc, but we're late in our beginning and we're not moving fast enough. You know, I think Josh had a lot of good messages in his episode. I mean, one of the things that's at the end of his podcast that I thought was uh, really relevant, especially given we're going through COVID at the time, was he had this zombie apocalypse analogy, uh, yes. right? You know, he sort of relates to what you need to be able to do to be resilient. You know, if you're being chased by zombies, you know, it's the important thing to survival is to find a defensible building, have defenses in your security posture. Uh, you need to keep cool and have a cohesive unit, have a good team, right? Don't panic. And then, you know, you don't want to fight blindly. You know, you want to have cameras and door sensors, and if you're attacking from different angles, you want to have visibility. And so, again, you want to have that threat intelligence. You want to be able to know what's going on. And then finally, um, you want to have appropriate countermeasures. You have the weapons. You need to be able to have the ability to protect yourself in cyberspace, too. And so, you know, he also had a good way of sort of relating what we need to do to be more resilient. One of the things he was really focused on in in his uh, time with CISA, and it goes back to, obviously, his heritage. Um but was obviously what was going on, right? Everything that was happening and how he did tie that back into this apocalypse kind of analogy. But he was talking about the incidents that we were, had just dealt with, right? Impact to the water we drink, I think he mentioned, right? Yeah. The food that we have, 
coming on our hospital, tables. the healthcare system healthcare. is being impacted. Right. Colonial pipeline was back then, oil and gas, right? So there was so much going on, but you know, he just did a really great job and kind of setting the stage of what was really happening during the pandemic and the aspects of it all. So Rob, one of the things we wanted to do with the podcast was really help understand the threat landscape because we're trying to evolve how cybersecurity can address the threat landscape more effectively, right? Obviously, a number of different threat actors, one of which is nation states. And we had on in episode 11, Bill Hagestad, who is a cyber warfare advisor, former U.S. military, that is an expert in this area. And he has a focus on Iran and China, as well as some of the other nation state actors that are active out there. He's written several books. And and honestly, it was a bit of a scary episode, if you recall. It was. You know, he, <laughs> he, he, he certainly opened our eyes to some of the things that are going on. And so here we are with Bill. Most uh, commercial executives, uh, with all due respect, perhaps have not served in the military. That in and of itself is not a detractor, but this is, make no mistakes, gentlemen, as the Iranians call it, a soft war, which means that they will come at whomever they want, whenever they want, however they decide. So it becomes more, not necessarily a game of how do I protect myself, but really avoiding the escalation for the sake of keeping yourself viable and commercially available to your customers. The Iranian hackers will use what they have seen successfully, but I will also tell you that they are developing capabilities, specifically mm. adapting surveillance types of technology in order to make it uh, much more available for themselves from an offensive perspective. When it comes to taking an idea or looking at reconnoitering institutions or enterprises that have a soft underbelly that they can take advantage of maliciously and violently. There will be some bi-directional sharing of techniques for sure. Uh, in many of the uh, International hacking events that I have gone to capture the flags and other uh, various exercises. One, for example, that you may make note of is Hackers in Taiwan, HIPCON, uh, takes place in Taipei every year. This is essentially a who's who of the most prolific, dangerous hackers on the planet. And what they want to do is make it uh, essentially a name, a prideful name for themselves in the hacking community. This is exactly the type of attention that the Iranian hackers want. And if they can adapt that for their own use and perhaps uh, use it for the state, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, then gathering and gaining these types of technology and experiences abroad, certainly pre-COVID, uh, certainly to end here, certainly in the post-COVID world, they will do so and they will continue to do so with aggressive uh, behavior. All right. So that was Bill Hagestad in episode 11. And Stan, you're right. It, it was scary because I think the aspect of discussing Iran is different. Right. And that's one of the things Bill was also sharing with us. We think about China, we think about Russia, right? We think about kind of these other global powers and the mm -hmm. aspect that he brought forth around what's happening with the kind of Iranian capabilities in, in the cyber uh, side of things is it's kind of flying the radar a bit. Well, the cyber crime um, ecosystem has also evolved and we wanted to have insight into what's going on there and what's next. So in episode 40, we had Ravid Lobb, who took us inside cybercrime and the cybercriminal ecosystem. And Rahib's you know, experience comes from his background in the Israeli military and focused on intelligence. Right. right? And he evolved that and continued that because he has such a strong passion for investigating uh, cybercrime type of activities. And I think that we see probably um, two major things happening here, I would say. The first one is cybercriminals erecting businesses that are based on automation. Say, for example, five years ago, again, um, you had credentials that you wanted to sell. 
what you would do as an attacker, you would go on a community, on a forum, and you would post, I have something for sale. Please contact me so I can sell it to you. What you do right now is you sign up as a seller in an online automated market, upload your wares there, where people just buy them um, without doing anything. With paying via cryptocurrency to the website, you don't have to lift a finger. Second thing that we're seeing is cyber criminals using legitimate software um, and legitimate tools that regular organizations use to make their work easier as well. A lot of legitimate popular services scan the internet for vulnerabilities, for exposed technologies, and make that data available for security researchers, for defenders, to understand how their perimeter and how their organization looks. And maybe even before a lot of defenders, attackers have gotten wind of that as well, in terms of automation, in terms of leveraging services and products that use cutting-edge technology. I probably wouldn't say that we see cyber criminals doing that themselves, but we sure do see them abusing um, legitimate software that actual good legitimate vendors um, sell on the market. And we do see them heavily focus on automation when it comes to how they manage their own businesses. Ravid really does a great job of going through and discussing really that business model that cybercrime syndicates have put forth. And the impacts, right? Not just the what they're doing, but also how it kind of basically is hitting them negatively at times. So it it really was that tying it together from how they operate as a business and how they specialize, right? I mean, specialization, the capabilities that they actually outsource in many cases. And I think we talked about this not that long ago too, where people are taking action for certain kind of elements of the cyber incident as a whole, and they don't know what the bigger, grander picture is. Ravid did a really great job of pulling that all together for us. We've also addressed some of these other attacks, like the Log4j and SolarWinds were, in a sense, zero days that impacted the software supply chain. We've had several episodes on that, and as well as how you can mitigate some of your software supply chain kind of risks. We've also had an episode or two on, you know, you've been hacked. Episode 15 with Sean Tuma, we've, we've had on a couple of times. And again, for those that don't remember, Sean is a lawyer in Dallas that's focused on privacy and cybersecurity. And he has a practice in that area. And he works with those that are dealing with impacts of cyber attacks and having to respond to them and helping them through that whole process. And Stan, coming off of those discussions that we've had on threats, a lot of it always kind of comes back to how we connect to uh, supporting um, cyber leadership, but business leadership as well, right? And this big pivot that we've been seeing on uh, the maturation of, uh, in essence, the role of the CISO. And one of the great episodes we had was with Jim Rouse. That was episode yes, number two. That's right. On conventional approaches to improve enterprise. Jim has got such great experience, right? I mean, he was the CISO at American Express, JP Morgan Chase, CVS, Aetna, most recently Mass Mutual, before he went into his, what he calls retirement, but we all know he's extremely busy still this mm-hmm. day. But there's a, there's a great episode there. So have a listen to this. The best and most important decision that a CISO or any cybersecurity professional makes is how to allocate scarce resource to the highest risk. So the decisions that we make in that allocation become much more important, recognizing that the number 15 risk on the list is probably going to be resource-starved in terms of the projects and programs supporting the risk management processes. However, the top 10 
cyber risks and the corresponding projects, programs, and remediation work, that will be the highest priority and that will get the most resources. And therefore, it'll move the needle, so to speak, in terms of managing risk for the enterprise more effectively uh, because it's the right way to allocate resource from a priority standpoint. So again, that was Jim Ralph when he was still the CISO over at Mass Mutual. Episode two, unconventional approaches to improving the enterprise. And 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 again, he has so many bits of wisdom, you know, and, and he's a great mentor to a lot of us. One of the great things to listen to in the full episode is the the kind of origin of the role of the CISO. And as Jim started out, his very first role as a CISO was with American Express. It's a great story. He talks about how he's just getting started. It's day one, and he's being asked to present the next day to the OCC, right. what the cybersecurity strategy is for American Express. And he knows now at this point, he's way over his head. So what does he do? He actually reaches out to Steve Katz, who's basically known as the very first CISO. The first CISO. Right. And, and he has a quick conversation with Steve and Steve says, I'll be right on over. And he literally comes over to his office um, and sits down and pulls a couple folks with them to help Jim out and kind of say, let me guide you through how this works. And, and, and really the behind the scenes message that Jim was sharing with this was one is that that great sense of collaboration and partnership in the community, but also that back then, right? And this is going back like 20 years as he talks about back then, it was more of a, if you follow this type of framework, whatever the risk framework may be, the regulator, the auditor will go through and in essence kind of quote unquote, check the box. And that is completely changed because he goes on to talk about how it really depends on now what organization you're in, not the specific vertical only, because each organization's risk appetite, risk profile is completely different. Further, he talks about when you put these standard blueprints in place back then, what happened? We made it very easy for the threat actors, the attackers, to know the different ways and how to get in and be very vertically focused on how to actually do some damage. So obviously, the evolution is great to see kind of where everything came from, where it's gone, and how it really needs to be very different, but always connecting to the business aspect was a key message from Jim's episode. We've spoken to a, a number of cybersecurity leaders during the podcast series, right? And, right? and one of the guests that we had on is a good friend of mine, Param Efsakari. Yes. And, and Param currently is serving as the executive vice president of the CISO community at the Cyber Risk Alliance. But he's been involved with organizing these kind of gatherings of cybersecurity leaders for over 15 years. And so while he's never been in the seat, he has a, a perspective on how the CISO has evolved over the last decade and a half. And so we had him on to help us better understand in episode 17 in, in you know, cybersecurity and the modern CISO, how he has seen the, the CISO role change and how it has been impacted by the interactions with the board and how it's moved from more of a, a technical kind of role where you're trying to deploy firewalls and other security controls, which you still have to do, but you also have to be aligned with the business to be effective now. That was a great episode to help us better understand that evolution. Uh, let's start with what has changed. I think that the role of the CISO and really, uh, depending on the size of the organization, those who were tasked with being um, leading cybersecurity and, and, and leading risk, I think what we see is that they're they're becoming more and more business leaders and business executives, at least 
I think the ones who are more effective and, and efficient in their role understand that it's less about them actually uh, implementing the technology and, and, and kind of doing the blocking and tackling themselves. They have teams to do that. What's really important for the CISO to do is understand how to navigate the business side of the organization and speaking to those priorities. At the end of the day, very few business leaders are going to be interested in how you're achieving those outcomes. And so if you can come to them and say, I've identified these risks to the business uh, and I can help you mitigate those risks by implementing some security strategies. And here's what they are in business terms. I can reduce the risk of hackers attacking the network. That's all you got to say. And then tie back to dollars and say, you know, here are some scenarios I've built out. Uh, if, if you're in a manufacturing facility, you say, if we're down for one hour, we're going to lose X amount of revenue. And, you know, th- th- most, most recently, here's five recent examples in our industry of ransomware or, or, or whatever, whatever incident has happened that has cost our competitors X amount per day. That's hard to argue. All right. So that was Parham. And I think, again, that was a great way of looking at it in episode 17 at the broad role of the CISO and how it's evolved. We also had Ty Sabano on to represent the specifics around what it means to be a cybersecurity leader in a startup. Ty has worked at very large organizations, but he's currently the CISO at Vercel. This is not his first startup, so he understands the role and what it means and, and the different level of agility you have to have. And in episode 37, Aligning Cybersecurity with Startup Business Goals, he goes through that with us. Your first act matters so much to building or destroying the confidence of what you're going to do there in that organization. I love to just work on tough problems because I think that really drives creativity. That drives a lot more of your own internal resiliency of working through adversity. And honestly, 18 years deep, I'm at a point where there's no emotional reaction to a lot of this anymore, regardless of the incident, regardless of the mistake, regardless of the error. It takes a lot because I think just even in these past two years, we've seen more physical warfare. That's that's definitely come into my frame. We've seen pandemic responses that we'd only drafted in plans and dealt with like swine flu back in the day or like little things. But now it's really that adjustment. So I, I like to quote Mike Tyson here. You know, I think everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think that first 100 days, we all have this glorious idea of 30, 60, 90. But in startup land, you have to be willing to adjust accordingly. I think that's such a great quote from, from Ty. It's reality, right? In dealing that's with right. startups, especially in the, the, the pace that they operate at. He has a lot of great experiences that he's been able to apply. Obviously, lessons learned at different startups. But that rich heritage also, I think, of organizations and experiences at Capital One, Target, and JP Morgan Chase that he came from in his earlier career. I think really helped establish him and how he can actually apply capability for what startups really need getting going quickly to be successful. Again, juxtaposition against what Jim has done. You know, Jim Routh has done a lot of these very large organizations, has been leaders there, and then Ty now leading a startup. So it's really cool. You know, I think that is going to be where we're going to wrap as far as the clips we're going to share. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, we've hit a lot of other cool topics. So episode number eight still is probably one of my favorite episodes with Jeremy Epstein with the National Science Foundation. Just some of the examples he used as far as where he's actually helping research around cybersecurity, which is like, what? Um, Sort of mind-blowing as far as some of the things that they're doing. What has been one of your favorites? There's been many, of course, but one of the more recent ones was pretty intriguing to me with 
Virginia Wright from National Labs was talking about really again, kind of you know the the, the right. energy sector and, right. and and why it was so interesting to me was because of how critical obviously it is to secure the energy sector and the components and everything behind it, but how difficult it can be because you can do things as we're developing new technologies to embed security in, but having to go back into how actually you can embed security in without breaking things to the legacy um, systems and applications is extremely difficult. And this whole process that now she is programmatically going through, right? One of her new initiatives um, at the National Labs, I think it just, that was so intriguing to me. And with all this new infrastructure going out there uh, around the electric grid, that'd be, that'd be really important. And just to wrap it up, I mean, one of the things that I, I think has been a great addition this year at least I've really enjoyed it, are the extra episodes. I think by having a weekly cadence that's been good, by using it, the opportunity to, to have more episodes, to have this, the two of us talk about events of the day uh, has been a lot of fun. We want to thank everyone for obviously listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, and we are so looking forward to the next 50. Can't wait. <laughs>